You're right, guys. Welcome to Jesus Unfiltered, Durham CU's new podcast about how we make sense of Christianity in the modern world. I'm Joseph Knight, a third year studying history at Durham. And I'm Judith Holmes, a second year theology student. In this podcast, we want to chat about 21st century issues in a Christian context, have a look at what the Bible has to say about them, and join in with some important conversations. Today, we're joined by David Wilkinson, astrophysicist and theologian. We will be chatting to him about whether modern day science and scientific discoveries have rendered a faith in Jesus obsolete. Scientific advancement and scientific prestige and fame is not what makes us fully human. What makes us fully human is to know God and to enjoy him forever. Hi, David. Uh, thank you for being with us today. We're really excited to hear from you and to hear what you've got to say. Um, why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Thanks. It's good to be here. My name is David Wilkinson. I'm currently principal of St. John's College at Durham University. Um, my background originally was as a theoretical astrophysicist. So I worked here in the Department of Physics on uh, galaxy evolution, star formation, the Big Bang, and other small questions like that. Uh, then I felt a, a sense of God's call to full-time Christian ministry, and I served uh, in a local church as a pastor in Liverpool, uh, and then about uh, almost 20 years ago came back to Durham, this time to, to teach theology. But I still have this fascination with science and, of course, with Christian faith. Uh, and it's that uh, interest in Christianity and science that we want to tap into today. So um, obviously you say you work in this kind of tension between science and Christian faith and, and because of notable work from people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris and other materialist atheists. Yeah. Um, lots of people have the belief that science and scientific discoveries have made faith in a god or in jesus obsolete and that you can't be an intellectual scientific thinker and um, whilst having faith you know what what would you say to that do you think that means science is incompatible with christianity no i don't i think you're right in that there's a lot of very strong voices which say that science is in conflict with christian faith but in fact that's really quite a recent thing it only goes back about 150 years to a man called Thomas Henry Huxley, who was called Darwin's bulldog. He was the friend of Darwin who took some of Darwin's work and used it in the public arena. And uh, at the latter part of the 19th century, Huxley founded a secret society. This is really fascinating. It was called the X Club. And a number of people gathered together to eat nice dinners and to talk about a fundamental problem. And the problem that they had was that uh, science was completely under the control of the Church of England. If uh, you were going to be Professor of Astronomy here at Durham University in the 19th century, you had to be an ordained Anglican clergyman to do it. If you're going to be president of the British Association of Science, you had to be uh, uh, probably a bishop. And Huxley and others wanted to move science out of the political control of the church. And part of the way that they did that was to create a model of science and religion, which was one of conflict. They said, science is about facts, religion is about faith. Uh, that once you've got a scientific description of something, that's all you need. You don't need any 
theological understanding. And they led to a movement which started to literally rewrite some of the history so that Galileo became a battle, a conflict between science and Christianity. In fact, it was far more interesting than that. Uh, the Darwin controversies of the 19th century became a battle between uh, science and theology. And that same model, as you rightly said, is picked up by the new atheists, Dawkins and Sam Harris, Chris Hitchens, Dan Dennett, but also by a number of comedians today. So it's in popular culture. So we've got Ricky Gervais and Stephen Fry and Eddie Izzard who present this kind of conflict approach. Now, it seems to me, to get back to your question, sorry that I've gone on a little bit, that there are two things wrong with that. The first is, it says that science and theology describe the world in exactly the same way. And therefore, if one says one thing and the other says something else, then you've got to choose one or the other. That's the conflict model. And the trouble with that is it's far too simple. I mean, to use an old illustration, what is a kiss? Well, a kiss is the approach of two pairs of lips, the reciprocal transmission of carbon dioxide and microbes, and the juxtaposition of two orbicular muscles in a state of contraction. That's a kiss, as a scientist would describe it. But if I go to my wife, Alison, and say to her, let me get together with you for a mutual transmission of carbon dioxide and microbes. Let me juxtapose my orbicular muscle in a state of contraction with yours. She would say, get lost. You see, in that context with my wife, I talk about a kiss in terms of meaning, value, and purpose, which is the true definition of a kiss. Is it one about carbon dioxide or is it the one about meaning, value, and purpose? Actually, both are true, but different. The second problem with the conflict model is that people say that science and Christianity explore the universe in completely different ways. One is about facts, and one is about kind of uh, throwing your brain away and just believing in this God. But the thing about my experience, both as a scientist and a Christian, is that both involve evidence, and both involve evidence that has to be interpreted. So I've just been doing a little piece on um, the discovery of phosphine in the clouds of Venus and whether that means that uh, there are our closest neighbors, the little microbes who live in the clouds of Venus. Now, there were observations of that, but they have to be interpreted. You have to run models about whether the phosphine is produced by uh, biological organisms or whether it can be produced by something else. Um, and in the same way for me, Christian faith involves hard evidence, primarily of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we can sit down and we can interpret the history. We can uh, try and understand uh, whether some of the statements that Jesus said, what, are they true or not? Uh, what's the historical evidence for the resurrection? But actually, within Christian faith, you're dealing with evidence as well. So I don't think the conflict model works at all. That's really helpful. I'm not going to lie, I wasn't expecting us to be talking about kissing today, but that's an incredibly helpful analogy. Um, so I guess, um, as we've been talking about some of these potential conflicts, and you've been talking about some of the ones that you've been looking into recently, um, I think we just want to go into some of the main ones that get brought up, um, particularly as we're looking in the student culture, um, some of the key arguments that can be used um, when looking at how faith and science 
um, do potentially um, contrast or conflict with one another. Um, so evolutionary science um, in particular is often used as proof that there can't be a divine creator. Um, do you believe this makes the idea of a creator God untenable? No, I don't. Now, of course, Judith, I have to acknowledge that within the Christian church, there are a variety of views on this subject. There are some Christians who read the first chapter of Genesis as a literal scientific account and say that it says to us that the universe was made 6,000 years ago. Uh, there are other Christians like myself who take the authority of the Bible equally as seriously but say that the first chapter of Genesis isn't meant to be read as a scientific textbook. In fact, for me, it's a, it's a hymn of praise or worship. It's the writer saying, I, I'm not too worried about the science about all of this, but I want you to know just how great God is. And I want you to sing this song of just how good God is with me. So first of all, the, there is an issue between different Christians on this. And I just have to be honest about that. Um, and so some Christians would see it as an attack on the literal reading of Scripture. I don't see that because I don't think that's what Scripture says. Then I think there's an issue, which is a really important issue, about whether an evolutionary history undermines the special nature of human beings. Some people will say this, if I'm descended from a common ancestor to an ape, does that mean that God doesn't have a special place for human beings? And I don't buy that kind of argument. And I think it comes back to what is special about human beings in the Bible? Well, actually the Bible doesn't say a great deal about um, our brain capacity or about uh, um, our physical nature. I think what the Bible says is that we are special because we've been given an intimate relationship with God. So it's about God communicating intimately in person to Adam and Eve. And so I, I think what's special about human beings is not how we're made or what we look like or our brain capacity. What's special about human beings is that we are given the gift of relationship with God. And that's what Jesus is all about. He's the one who restores that relationship with us. It's not something we deserve. It's something that's given. So a friend of mine called Sam Berry used to say, he was a professor of genetics at, at London University, a Bible-believing Christian like myself. And he would say, maybe uh, evolution is the way that God uh, causes the emergence of homo sapiens. But we become human when God reaches out and introduces himself and forms a relationship. Now, that's what some Christians believe. Other Christians believe different things. But I don't think it's, uh, it's an either-or, creation or evolution, do we have to choose? No, we don't, actually. Uh, we don't have to choose. Um, yeah, on that idea about not having to choose between science or between the authority of Scripture between faith um how would you know we've already talked about genesis adam and eve the story of creation how could and how does our knowledge of science and modern day scientific discovery affect how we read other parts of the bible um like some of the miracles of, of jesus you know things like that yeah good question again joe that uh, what i'm not going to say is that um, that science 
is only brought in in Genesis 1 as a conversation partner. Science is part of my discipleship. And so each of the passages of scripture, I need to bring it into conversation. Now, there are some really easy passages of scripture which we interpret without thinking about it. So in the Song of Songs, well, this is a great love poem, when uh, the, the writer says of his beloved, we decode it and say, oh, this is about elegance in the ancient world. And so, so science, in a sense, is going on, common sense is going on in the background to help us interpret scripture well. You rightly raise then the issue about the New Testament. And do I, as a scientist, come to this and say, well, miracles aren't possible, therefore the stories about Jesus are made up um, uh, and were created by the early church. I, I don't think that's what a scientist actually should say. I think as a scientist, I come to the resurrection and I say, let me first of all look at the evidence. Let me look uh, at the empty tomb, at the uh, appearances to the disciples, the transformation of the early church, a whole number of other things. And then let me be pushed to a conclusion, even if it doesn't fit with my nice um, view of the world. Now, for me, the, the, the evidence for the miracles that Jesus performed is so strong, particularly the resurrection, that I can sit here and say, as a scientist, I can't explain how the resurrection happened but I'm prepared to take the evidence for it. Just as in the same way that if we were having this conversation um, back at the start of the 20th century, and of course we wouldn't be able to do it via the technology today, but if we were, uh, you might ask me the question, is light a wave or a particle? And I would say, well, it's a wave, but it's also a particle. And you would say, oh, come, come, it has to be one or the other. And I'd say, well, to be honest, there's evidence for light as a wave and there's evidence for light as a particle, but I can't tell you how uh, both can be true. Well, we, we'd wait about 20 or 30 years until Paul Dirac comes along and gives us a theory called quantum electrodynamics, which tells us how light can be both wave and particle. And we, don't worry, we won't go into that. But you see, there was a period of time where I would have had to hold the evidence, even if I couldn't understand fully what's happening. Now, how God works in the world, I think is a really important question that as both a Christian and as a scientist, I want to engage with. So I want to ask questions about how God works in, through and beyond the laws of nature, but I don't have an easy answer to that. And likewise, I don't have an easy answer to the big question, if God can do extraordinary things, why does he do some things and not others? And that's sometimes called the problem of evil in the world. If God can act, why doesn't he uh, act against all evil in the world? And I don't have an easy answer to that either. But the evidence that I see in Jesus for me is so compelling that I'm prepared to hold it, even if I don't have a neat philosophical understanding of how it happens yeah and i i guess that evidence is is quite key uh, particularly if you know and and i guess empirical ed evidence is so important in science um it was first pioneered 
by who was it david yeah. hume um yeah. you know would you mind going into some of the detail about what yes. evidence there is for the resurrection you know hard evidence that we can see and believe yes thank you david hume you rightly said the scottish philosopher um had a whole treatise where he argued against miracles and he did so on a number of uh, points but particularly key was something about whether you could trust the eyewitnesses and whether this was something that um normally happened or didn't. Now, let's take the resurrection for an example. The first thing is that I find the resurrection accounts um, to be authentic in terms of their eyewitness uh, nature. And what I mean by that is that they're messy. They don't fit together very well. <laughs> they're puzzling. Uh, there are little things, like, for instance, the fact that women were the first uh, to record the resurrection of Jesus at the tomb. If you were making this up, if you weren't eyewitnesses, you would never have done that because in those days, women were not truthful eyewitnesses, not trustworthy eyewitnesses. So if you're gonna have a story, the first witnesses to the resurrection would have been Simon Peter and the other male disciples, not the women. And then I think there's something about the fact that many of the disciples who would, uh, in one sense, build their whole career in proclaiming this good news about Jesus being raised from the dead are not presented in the best of light. I mean, Simon's the one who kind of goes in and uh, puzzles about it. Thomas is the one who says, well, unless he appears with the, with the, with the nail holes. So there's something there about the, the truthfulness of the eyewitnesses. And then I think there's, a, there's a, a large number of pieces of evidence which, when you put them together, you begin to wonder. So if we take the empty tomb, well, what other explanations might there be? What normal explanations might there be? Would the Jews have uh, robbed the grave, taken the body away? Would the Romans have robbed the body? Would the disciples have robbed the body? Trouble is, as you work those through, you begin to think, that doesn't make sense, does it? Uh, if the Christians are standing up there and proclaiming Jesus is alive, then all you have to do is produce the body. And even if the disciples did that, then, to be honest, would they die for it, all of them, for this false claim? And then I think there's that sense of these odd appearances of Jesus. And again, they don't seem to be made up because they're too messy. He appears in rooms with locked doors. He, he seems to have the, the, the marks of the cross still on his body. Uh, sometimes the disciples actually don't recognize him. So he goes on a walk with two of the disciples from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they don't recognize him. I mean, I've heard a lot of bad preachers on, the, on that particular passage talk about, well, in the ancient world, they didn't have sunglasses, or they were crying all the way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, so they couldn't see him. No, I think Luke is saying there was something mysterious, different about this risen Jesus. Uh, therefore, I think that there's a sense of, of eyewitness reality to it. But I also think that one builds evidence which pushes you together to a conclusion that the unusual has happened here, not the usual. Now, 
It's a judgment. I can't prove the resurrection to you. And I can't um, argue purely on logic that this is the case. We can have a conversation about it. We can assess the evidence and we'll do it differently. But then the final clincher is that, and this is where Christianity is slightly different from, from science. Christianity says that the heart of the search is a personal God, not an impersonal theory. So the invitation is, once you've assessed the evidence, are you prepared to actually open yourself to encounter the risen presence in your own life? I did that at the age of 17. I, I read the Gospels. Um, I was convinced by the evidence, but there needed to come a time where actually I said, Jesus, I want to meet you. I want to meet you in reality, in personal experience. I want to follow you. And that's a different kind of quality to the scientific argument. Uh, and people come to that in different ways. Yeah, that's really, really useful. I'm kind of going on a different tangent now. Um, we mentioned it, I mean, well, you mentioned it, um, the discovery of phosphine on Venus. Um, and I know you've written a, a lot or a little bit about this yes. kind of thing, um, about whether alien discovery would change how we see the gospel, whether we'd need multiple Jesuses um, on different planets uh, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, do you want to yeah, 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 yeah. explain a little bit about how, you know, whether the discovery of aliens might change everything? I, I don't think it would. For me, it would simply expand the extravagance of God in creation. I mean, creation is extravagant already in terms of the biodiversity on this planet. Um, and there's much of it which I don't understand. I mean, why wasps, for example? Um, I've never understood that. I'm a physicist, of course, and biologists will help me out on this. But um, why the extravagance? I think it's because God is an extravagant creator. He loves to create. He's not boring. Um, and therefore, the existence of uh, microbes in the clouds of Venus, if that can be shown to be the case, and it's just an observation at the moment with a probable cause, um, would simply for me just show that God is extravagant in creation. And that human beings, though special to God, are not the center of everything. We're not God's only interest in the world. Where, where it becomes a little more interesting is if we discover intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. And that's where a lot of Christians have uh, wondered about the significance of the Jesus event as it applies to other life elsewhere in the universe. I have written on it, as kind of you to mention. Um, I, I don't give a definitive answer to this. Um, you see, the Jesus event for Christians is important because it does two things. It shows us what God is like. God becomes a human being in the space-time history of the universe so that we can see God's love for us. But it also deals with our selfishness, our sin through Jesus' death on the cross. It's an act of salvation. Now, those Christians who've wondered about it have thought, well, maybe this, uh, this Jesus event was once for all for the whole universe. So it happened here on the earth. The trouble with that is that you and I then have to become cosmic missionaries, taking the gospel out 
And that's a very long missionary journey, to be honest. But might there be, uh, in another world with intelligent beings, might there be Jesus becoming incarnate in um, whatever little green flesh they happen to inhabit? And, um, I mean, that's a possibility. Um, uh, and some Christians have argued for it as well. But the difficulty there is that, actually, would that race of intelligent beings have sinned in the same way that you and I have? Um, a good friend of mine, John Polkinghorne, a, a former um, physicist at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, once said, I don't know the answer to the question of whether God appeared in different worlds. Uh, but he said, what I see in Jesus, he would do what is necessary. And I think that's a pretty good answer, actually. The God that I see in Jesus would do what is necessary. And so just as a scientist, when I, I'm, I'm just delighted by this discovery in Venus, it was a, a bit of a shock to, to many of us. Um, I think there may be even more shocking things about the universe that we're, we're yet to find out. But ultimately, for me, these are things that just show how great God is rather than diminish him. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so, so interesting um, and really cool that we have the freedom to think about these things while still being able to yes. know our identity yeah. in Christ, which yeah, yeah. is really cool. Um, you were talking a bit about yes. um, how um, there are questions you have that the answer is indefinite and you were saying how there's going to be mind-blowing discoveries that are yet to come and as we look past over previous centuries we've seen um, how scientific development is ever increasing um, as we continue to see um, our knowledge of the world um, and our knowledge of science increase and as we um, continue to understand more of things that potentially we may have been able to just pin on God without our own understanding. Um, why do you believe we still need faith and we still need Jesus to explain and to understand the world? That's uh, uh, a very profound point. I think, first of all, I'd want to say very clearly that, that science is a gift from God. So Kepler, the great astronomer, said that science is thinking God's thoughts after him. So there's something about science which is about glorifying God. And coupled with that is my sense that God calls people as Christians to be scientists. So that you can be called to be a scientist just as much as you can be called to be a pastor or a biblical teacher um, or whatever. But I think um, uh, from that point of view, science is to be seen as a gift to be used. And how do you use science correctly? Well, for me, it's about using it under the Lordship of Christ. Now, science and technology is a wonderful gift, but it doesn't inevitably lead to a better world. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was a great deal of optimism around. Uh, and it was that science, technology, education would lead to utopia, um, perfection on earth. The trouble is that in the 20th century, we saw great strides forward in science, which gave us medicine and space travel and transport and communication, wonderful gifts. But it also led to the gas chambers of Auschwitz. It also led to 
uh, environmental degradation, uh, reducing biodiversity, climate crisis. You see, how you use science um, has to come from a bigger philosophical or moral framework. Now, for me, uh, what it means to glorify Jesus as a scientist is to do my science well. That is to follow the, the observations, follow the facts, whatever kind of questions it raises. But at the same time, it's to do it within the principles of a God who says that love is more important than power, self-giving is more important than selfishness, that forgiveness and grace are the way that we relate to fellow human beings, and that there is that uh, Christ-like action which says, I am going to give myself for others. That's the way of the cross. Now, that's not to deny people who do science who are not Christians. Many of them are um, uh, extremely moral in terms of their framework towards fellow human beings. But for me, the Christian framework gives that sense of both glorifying God in rejoicing in science, but also using science well. And I think that's a responsibility and perhaps for, for students uh, as well. I mean, how you do your science uh, in the lab without cutting corners, without copying somebody else's results, which you borrowed from the year above you or whatever, not that we would ever do that. But also that uh, in the lab, we're also compassionate to one another. We act well towards one another. And that actually, um, scientific advancement and scientific prestige and fame is not what makes us fully human. What makes us fully human is to know God and to enjoy him forever. We've been really encouraged by what David has shared with us and we hope you have too. If you have any more questions or would like to speak to someone more on this topic, feel free to go to the Durham CU website, Instagram or Facebook page for more information. We'd love to hear from you. And join us next week where we will be joined by author, speaker and president of the Girls' Brigade, Rachel Gardner, to talk to us about faith, identity and our culture of comparison.